I ask if you would uh, turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 5, as well as turn in your insert and uh, use that to follow along and take notes. Romans 5 is a text that I've got four weeks left, and it's a text that fits into four weeks left. So we're going to Romans chapter 5, but there's more than that, and that is um, Romans 5 12 through uh, the end of the chapter, is a rather epical moment in the book of Romans. So Paul has been talking about his, his uh, doctrine, his theology, and it obviously revolves around the personal work of Jesus Christ, what he's done. And in chapter 5, after describing the work of Jesus Christ and how the Old Testament uh, supports that or, or testifies to it, and then in chapter 5, of course, he he gives this climactic uh, verse 1, having uh, been justified by faith, we have peace. Well, in verse 12, he turns his focus to describe not what Jesus Christ specifically has done, although we'll talk about that in the coming weeks, but primarily who he is. Who he is as our Savior. What kind of Savior is Jesus Christ? Now, um, by way of a preface, um, this is one of the, the, the most complicated passage in the book of Romans. And the reason why is because Paul is Mr. Digressor, and he digresses massively in this text. So if you would notice with me verse 12, it says, Therefore, um, that draws us back to what he just said in verses 10 and 11, where he talks about in verse 10, we shall be saved by his life. Hopefully you got your Bible. You can see that verse 11, the very end, um, through whom we have now received the reconciliation, therefore. So he's talking about Christ is our Savior. This is what Christ is as the one who has, re- uh, who has reconciled us and given us life. And then he says, by, uh, he, he, he begins this statement, which is a comparative. He wants to make a comparison. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... So in a comparison construct in Greek, you'd expect the very next, next word uh, to be hutos kai, or phrase, hutos kai. But it's not that. He doesn't use that construct. Um, so if you're, if you're looking for a comparison in the Greek, you're looking for the next hutos kai. And that comes in verse 18. So if you look down to verse 18, look at verse 12 first. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin... He repeats that in verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation of life to all men who toast Kai. So he's making a comparison, but in the middle of the comparison, what he says about Christ or what he says in verse 12 about man makes him go into two, not one, but two digressive statements. The first one is verses 12b through 14a which is talking about the necessity of Christ as our Savior. And then verses 14b through verse 17, he's talking about the superiority of Christ as our Savior. Today, we're going to look at the first digression. So I'm going to skip the very first beginning part of verse 12. We'll pick that up in a couple weeks. But we're going to first look at the digressions this week and next week, and then we'll go back to the main point that Paul's making here. With that, let me invite you, please stand together with me for the reading of God's Word. 
Hear now God's word. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who, by the way, is a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the transgression, for if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. And if the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification." For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Thus far the reading of God's word. Lord, we pray that you bless this time of fellowship with you. Lord, this passage is all about lifting up Christ. And we know your promise in scripture that if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. Lord, we pray, draw us to you this day. As we gaze upon the beauty, the glory, the majesty, the magnificence of you, our Savior, Jesus, the necessity of you as our Redeemer, God, draw our hearts to you. Give us grace to be responsive. And so to be a people who would leave here encouraged, built up, um, restored, refreshed, nourished in you. But Lord, therefore, give me the grace to preach your word with fidelity and and, and clarity, granting us unction unto that very end. God, we entrust this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a disposable age, don't we? We have disposable cups, disposable paper products, disposable diapers. You know, just look at any modern trash and you'll see disposable uh, containers. We have disposable everythings. And that is why in our culture as a whole, we've got disposable marriages. If you don't like your partner, walk away. Disposable jobs, you don't like your job, quit. Disposable um, parents, if you don't like your parents, divorce them. And this mentality has crept into the church. has always been there, actually. It must be part and parcel of who we are as, as sinners. Because if you, if you look at the modern day church all the way back into redemptive history, you see this mentality. If you don't like your, your church, the, walk away, right? It's uh, uh, disposable. I know, I know families, I know of uh, particular uh, families since I've been here, they've been in seven different churches. Seven. They can't find one that they like. Disposable church, uh, uh, disposable preachers. You know, the average stint right now in the United States for evangelical pulpits is less than three years. Less than three years. Disposable preachers. We've got disposable truth. If you don't like the opening chapters of Genesis, it's all right. Just just take it away. I was meditating this past week, thinking about broad evangelicalism, and realizing that though we have ten uh, commandments from God, I think most churches hold to, to six and possibly seven. That's it. The other three... We don't like, we throw them away. Disposable. And how dangerous that is when it comes to our view and our relationship with God. Right? Eve 
um, thought of the command of God as disposable, so she ate of their bidden fruit. Um, the priests in the Old Testament viewed their calling, their holy calling God gave them as disposable. And so in Malachi, they fell into all kinds of sin. Peter took his relationship with Christ for granted and so denied the Lord three times. And, and uh, Ananias and Sapphira took God for granted. They took him lightly as disposable. And so they lied to the Holy Spirit. Paul did not want God's people to take Christ lightly. And so in this passage, having said the very first phrase, therefore having just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, he, that made him think, you know what? Christ is so valuable. Christ is so necessary. So this first digression from 12 beyond, he talks about the necessity of Jesus Christ, that no one in Christ would look upon Christ as extra, superfluous, not necessary. You know, yeah, you need Jesus, but... He's not a large part of my life. Brothers and sisters, Christ, or Paul wants you to see, God wants you to see, Christ is at the center, the core. He's essential for you and I as God's people. So that's what we're looking at this morning. Notice with me, if you will, he makes two points, and they're a progressive. The first one is, Christ is an essential Savior because of the fallen state of man. Notice with me verse 12b. Therefore, just as through one man sin and the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men. This is describing the condition of man outside of Jesus Christ. And that condition is the state of death. And not just the state, but the essence of death. When God made the world and entered a relationship with mankind, recall he said, if you eat, you shall surely die. And that death is what's being spoken about here. Okay? And so death spread to all men. Now what is meant by this death? Well, in the Bible, when the Bible speaks about death, it speaks of it in four different ways. Okay? Your notes have them there. First, there's what's known as spiritual death. And spiritual death, by definition, is the death of the soul and its consequent enslavement to Satan. When Adam sinned, immediately he, his wife, were enslaved. Their souls died. They became dead people, the walking dead. Then there's moral death. This is the loss of conformity to God's character, his righteousness, holiness, and um, knowledge. Thirdly, there's physical death. And that's when the, se- the soul separates from the body. And then there's eternal death, which is the second death, which speaks of the eternal separation from God. Now, all four of those is what is, mo- is what is meant when Paul says, and so death spread to all men. Every individual on this planet okay, are bound by these four facets of the death that Adam's sin earned for us and plunged us into on account of his rebellion. Now, in Jesus Christ, we receive back three of those instantaneously. If you look at that list, when you're saved by grace through Jesus Christ, you spiritually, you become what it's known as the doctrine of vivification. Your soul is, re, is a, a remade. It's resurrected. You get a new life in Jesus Christ. Moral death. Now you have the, um, a relationship with God whereby you grow in your righteousness, knowledge, and holiness. 
Physical death is the one thing that we don't have yet, or the freedom from physical death. Um, that's at the second coming. Uh, but the third one is that we do have, the moment a person comes to Jesus Christ is not eternal death, but eternal life. No longer are we fearful of the last judgment. The last judgment, in essence, is taken care of in Jesus Christ. We live, we move, we have our, our being. But everyone else, everyone else on this world, on this planet, are born with, uh, bound by those four facets of death. And we see that in Scripture, Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it's talking about, all of those. Um, John 5, Christ said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word, believes him who sent me, has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death. The non-Christian world is defined by death. They're bound by it. Romans 6, 13, um, a little bit uh, later in this text, we read, uh, God calls us to present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. So, brothers and sisters, this world is characterized by death. Now, if you understand what that means, think with me on this for one moment. If you and I were going to spend this afternoon sharing the gospel with dead people, okay, you would have as much success sharing the gospel with um, knocking on a door and having a person answer it and sharing the gospel with them than if I went to a funeral home and shared the gospel with a corpse. That corpse could not hear me, and neither can that man. That corpse cannot respond by itself, and neither can that man or that woman. Okay, that is the state of you and me outside of Jesus Christ. We are dead to God. We are completely and totally dead. We are as corpses. Okay, That is why you need a Savior. We're not people, the state of mankind outside of Jesus Christ are not people who are just in some way tarnished or some way um, uh, deformed. They're dead. You will have as much success sharing the gospel with a a corpse that you would a non-believer outside of the work of Jesus Christ. There will be no success. So why do you need, why do we need a Savior? Because of the condition of man outside of Christ. We are dead. Completely and totally and no other way else. We're dead. Now, that being said, Paul builds upon this. So we've got to keep that in our minds as we go to the next point. Because not only are we dead, but another reason why Christ is an essential Savior is because of the guilt of of man. And this is where he, he goes uh, to town. Notice with me verse 12c. I'm going to start at the beginning of verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men, and this is the phrase, because all sinned. I'm going to first tell you what he means by this, and then we're going to look at the support that Paul gives. The first, because all sinned. See that little word sinned? In the Greek, it's in the aorist tense. Now, let me give you a quick Greek lesson for you real quickly. In in the English, we have one past tense. That's it. In the Greek, they had two. Imperfect, aorist. Imperfect imperfect is past tense of repeated action. Aorist is past tense of completed action. And so, for example, if I were to write in Greek, yesterday, we did yard work. That's past tense. If I put that in the imperfect... That would, come, that would bring to your mind the idea of, well, we went out there, we 
We mowed, we raked, we cleaned out the flower beds, we trimmed trees, we aerated, we fertilized, we watered. It took about six hours. Yesterday, we did yard work. If I, were to do, if I wanted to denote that, I'd put that in the imperfect. However, if I, like yesterday, walked to the mailbox, and because after the big windstorm, there was a huge branch on my, on my lawn, I went outside on the way to the mailbox, picked up that branch, and tossed it to this uh, area in my ha- uh, yard where I'm going to pick it up when trash day comes. I could say yesterday, I did yard work. Now, I wouldn't use the imperfect. I'd use the aorist on that one because that was just one act, right? I didn't go out there and labor. It was one act, okay? That's an aorist. The word used here is an aorist. When you read that, that you read so desperate because all sinned, we read that and we tend to think, oh yeah, all people are sinful. That's not what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying all people have sinned to one sin. They're guilty of one sin. Everyone born in the womb are guilty of one sin. One sin. That's what he's focusing on here. One sin. In fact, you see this explicated throughout the rest of this passage. If you can follow along, notice 15. I'm going to go a little slow here. Look at the phrase, by the transgression of the one, the many died. You see it? Verse 16. The judgment arose from one transgression. Verse 17, by the transgression of the one, death reigned. Verse 18, through one one, uh, transgression, there resulted in condemnation. Verse 19, through the one man's disobedience, the many were made uh, sinners. Five more times in this passage, Paul references the fact that every individual is guilty of one sin. Now, every individual does a lot of sinning, right? We do a lot of sinning, and some of us will think, well, they're not guilty of some of that sin. They may sin like that, but they're not guilty of that sin. I'll talk about that in one moment. But Paul's saying every individual in this world is guilty of one sin. Now, the Jews of Paul's day would have had a problem with this statement. Massive problem as will, as is the world in which we live, okay? We all, the, the world in which we live, does not believe men are born guilty of sin, okay? Most believe people are genuinely good. Now, what's amazing is you're going to find a lot of people in the evangelical church who don't believe that all men are born guilty of sin. They'll believe that some are not born guilty of sin. That's the doctrine of... Um, the Baptist doctrine, when it comes uh, to babies born, right? Babies who die in infancy. What are, they haven't reached the age of accountability. So they may have sin, but they're not guilty of that sin, right? They have sin. They may have sinned a lot as a two-year-old, but they haven't reached the age of accountability, so they're not guilty of sin. This is an incredible statement. Paul's saying, no, every individual is born guilty, liable, because of one sin. The Jews would not have accepted that. And yet Paul doubles down. Would you notice with me verse 13? He says, for until the law, now these are fighting words, for until the law, he's talking about Moses, for until the law of Moses, sin was in the world. Now in Judaism, brothers and sisters, that is a complete and total opposite statement. That's wrong. 
In the Jewish way of thinking, they believed that God's people, not all people, God's people were not sinful prior to the Mosaic law. They had no sin. Okay? Um, For example, Romans 4, uh, uh, 15. And they came by it, honestly. Romans 4, 15 says, where there is no law, neither is there violation. The very next statement, Paul says it, notice with me, 13b, but sin is not imputed when there's no law. So they may have sinned, but they're not guilty of that sin. It's not imputed to them. It's not counted uh, to, uh, to them. If there's not law, you're not guilty of violating that law. So Paul has these two statements that are in massive tension. 14a, until the law, those people prior to Moses, they were guilty of sin. Not just that they sinned, they were guilty of sin. But there's a theological principle that if there's no law, no sin. At least no guilt. There may be sin, but no guilt. No imputed guilt. So how does this reconcile itself? Well, then Paul then comes to verse 14 and says, Nevertheless, death reigned. All right, so the Jews are saying that's wrong. Baptists say that's wrong. Okay, a lot of people in our culture say that's wrong. What about those? I remember when I was a baby Christian meeting people on, on campus um, who believed, Christians, solid believers, that those in the deepest, darkest jungles would not be condemned because they didn't have God's word. God would judge them according to a different standard. Have you ever heard that or read that? Yeah, what about those people? They were born, raised, never having God's word ever read to them. They're one of those uh, uh, um, entire countries or people groups who have never heard the gospel. On the day of judgment, most certainly they will be redeemed. Some will, at least. Even though they've never heard of Jesus Christ, because where there is no law, there's no violation. Romans 14, or Romans 4, our text right now, Romans 5. So Paul takes this, he's running well with this, and as a master apologist, notice what he observes. Verse 14a, nevertheless, death reigned. Now that word reign carries with it absoluteness, okay? Death's dominion over man during this era between Adam and Moses was absolute and complete. Death reigned from Adam until Moses. And then he says even. See that word even? That's emphatic, Okay, he's making a massive statement here. Even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Whoa! How can they be guilty? How can they? Well, notice what he says. They all died. Now, how does that further, how does that answer the tension between verse 13a and 13b into the law? Death, uh, um, I'm sorry, until the law, sin was in the world. Whoa, 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 whoa. But death is not imputed, Paul. Okay? But Paul's saying (laughs) they're all sinful. How can that be? How can they be guilty of sin? Well, Paul's point's this. Did they die? Well, yeah. In fact, did they all die? They all died except for the one, right? They all died. No one is still alive in Paul's day who lived 400 years prior to this. They're all dead. Everyone's dead. Okay? What does that mean? Well, then why did they die? 
if you're not guilty of sin, you shouldn't die. Right? If you're not guilty, if sin is not, if, if God's not going to hold you to sin or hold you accountable to sin, you shouldn't die. Those people should still be living, but they're all dead. So what does that mean, brothers and sisters? What does that mean with regards to people who die outside of God's word? That means, what does it mean? It means they're bound by a law that's not Mosaic. They're bound by another law, a prior law. And what is that prior law that they're all bound by? Well, that prior law they're all bound by is where Paul's going to be going in this passage. Notice with me verse 12. Therefore, justice through one man's sin entered the world, just as through one, man, through one man's uh, sin entered into the world, and death through sin. So death spread, right? So what's the one sin? It's not Moses. It's not the law of Moses. They're guilty of violating the law that God gave to Adam. Remember what that law was? The first law ever given. And that law is found in Genesis 2. I'll read it. You know it. The Lord God commanded man. It's a command. From every tree of the garden you may eat freely. From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may, but you shall not eat. From the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So that's the first a command. And if you violate the command, you die. Now, in Scripture... What did Adam do? We know he sinned, but he just didn't violate the command by himself. And that's is where Paul's going with Romans 5, 18 and 19. Look your eyes down there. He just didn't do it by himself. He did it as a representative of you and me, of the world, of the race. Notice verse 18, speaking of Adam. So then it's through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men. It doesn't say the resulted sin, that yet to be imputed, it, res- it, it resulted in condemnation, which means that sin that Adam did is imputed upon all of mankind. The moment he sinned, his, his wife, his children, and the rest of mankind were now imputed, or death, or, or sin was now imputed to them, such that now they stand condemned. Verse 19, for as, as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So we're talking about the federal headship of Adam and original sin. Okay? Paul's saying, why is Christ a necessary Savior? Because we all are dead in our sin. We all die in sin. We've all died in sin. We're born um, or conceived in sin. And being conceived in sin, therefore, with those fourfold elements of death are part and parcel of us. Unless you think that, that, that it's not true, the reality is it is because we die. Verse 14, we die. We all die. Even those in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, they die. Even though they didn't have Moses' law or God's word, they, they all die. And that death testifies that they are bound or guilty or condemned by another law other than the Ten Commandments. And what is that law? The law God gave to mankind in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The law um, of perfect obedience. Um, incredible. But brothers and sisters, herein is the incredible news of the working, the, the saving work of Jesus Christ.
Notice with me 18 and 19. So then it's through one man's transgression, through one transgression that resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness that resulted justification of life to all men. Do you know what that means? That means that not only is Adam a federal head, but fill in the, the blank. Christ is a federal head. If Adam's sin condemns, he's a federal head, right? If Christ's obedience saves, he's a federal head. We'll keep on going. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, hutos kai, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Brothers and sisters, Paul has just shared, and maybe it's stuff that you already know so well, you're like, you're yawning, but don't yawn on this. This is huge. Paul has just shared the most glorious message that any ear could ever hear. And that is that Adam being a federal head, in Adam we all die, but in Jesus Christ we all live. And the implication from this passage is, brothers and sisters, you'll either be, character, uh, you'll either be um, represented by Adam or Christ. Period. What that means, therefore, is you'll never stand before God by yourself. Do you understand that? You'll never be before God on your own. On the day of judgment, you're going to stand before God, and those who do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ will be standing there with Adam representing them. They were not going to stand there by themselves, and God said, okay, tell me about what you did as a person they're going to stand before God in Adam. Or they're going to stand before God in Christ. There are no two other places, or there's no other place than those two. That's it. You're either in Adam or you're in God. Does that make sense? That's it. So while we in our Christianity talk about or stress, you know, your personal quiet times and your personal walk with God, amen, not wrong, fine. Don't conclude from that that you stand before God on your own two feet. You're not. You either stand before God in Adam or you stand before God in Christ. Those are the only two options. And because of that, Paul's point here is, brothers and sisters, if you're saved, you must understand Christ, therefore, is a necessary Savior. He's just not someone, think back on the judges, where, yeah, you know, the judges were all local. When you read Judges, you're not reading about a man like a Naaman, Barak, rising up and delivering the entire people of God. They were regional, local judges. So you might be way down south and go, way up in Dan, there's this judge. Well, he's not my judge. He's not my deliverer. He's not my uh, redeemer. You can't say that, brothers and sisters. Either Adam is your deliverer or Christ is your deliverer. Either Adam represents you or Christ does. There's no other ground on which to stand. You you and I have got to see this. Christ is an essential Savior. Adam's not. Christ, therefore, is essential. If you're going to be saved, you have to stand in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, there's going to be one of three responses that you're going to give to this message today. And I want to close by just briefly addressing one of those three. Each one of them. You'll either... Um, reject this teaching, you'll ignore it, or you'll accept it. Let's talk about each one of those real quickly. There are many who hear this today and they reject it. They say, that's what? You know, that's not fair. 
right? Wait a second. You, what you just said, based upon what this text is saying, is that the people born in the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa are guilty of sin the moment they're uh, conceived. Yes. You're telling me that an innocent baby in the womb is guilty of sin the moment they are uh, conceived. Yes. Exactly what Paul's saying here. Well, that's not fair. That's not fair that they should be guilty of sin. They have done nothing wrong. They're just simply existing, right? The moment the sperm reaches the egg, that one cell being is condemned. How can that be fair? That's not fair. I don't like the idea of representation. I don't like the idea of federal representation. That Adam represents us. That's not fair any more than the deepest, darkest jungles. These people don't know the right hand from their left. And you're telling me that because, because the, you know, whatever, that they're not saved or they can't be, be saved because of, of Adam? That's not fair. Well, brothers and sisters, those who reject that, who say that, if they think about it just a little bit, and by way of footnote, that used to be me. Okay? When I was a baby Christian, when I first heard this, I said, well, that's not fair. That's just garbage. I, that, there has to be a different interpretation because that's not fair. And my God, right? My God would never do that. And that's where Dr. Raymond comes in and says, what makes you think your God's the God of the Bible? Whoa, right? My God would never do that. Well, maybe your God's not the God of the Bible. Let's, let's follow down. Let's, go, let's do an argument absurdum here, okay? So let's, let's just get, say God comes and says to the person who says that's not fair, he comes and says, Okay, that's right. Let's, let's do away with representation. Adam does not represent you, okay? So, so now, every child that's born, I, in fact, I'm going to go back to the earth and create this beautiful harbor, uh, um, um, haven, where there's no fall, there's no sin, it's the garden. I'm going to recreate the garden on the earth with no sin. And every person born, can, uh, uh, conceived, gets to be put in that garden, and, and get this, with a command. And the command is not difficult. It's not like, I'm going to put you in that garden and you need to lift a billion pounds. So lift, start lifting weights, right? I'm going to put you in that garden. You've got you to gotta, you gotta figure out astrophysics or whatever. None of that. All that you have to do is what? Not do something. I mean, how hard is that, right? He's not telling you to do anything. The command is, don't eat of the tree. I mean, what could be more difficult? So you as a perfect individual are in the garden with a very simple command. A baby could fulfill it. Don't do this. But there's one caveat. There's going to be a very advanced being known as Satan. And this being is going to tempt you and tempt you and tempt you. Now, what will you do? What do you think you'll do? Well, most people in that case would say, I'd probably not eat it. No, you would eat it. We know that. How do I know that? Because Adam ate it. And Adam was a perfect man. We tend to think there's something flawed in Adam. He was a bozo, a dummy, an idiot. And therefore, I wouldn't be like Adam. Brothers and sisters, you missed it. Adam was a perfect being. And what the fall teaches us is not that Adam was a dummy. It teaches us that a perfect being cannot stand up to the standard of God. They can't match it. They can't meet the standard of God. The only one who can meet God's standard is God. That's the only one. 
And so you've done away with representation, and when you sin, now guess what? You don't have salvation. You have no chance of redemption. Why? You can't say, well, Jesus Christ. No, Christ can't represent you. If we do away with representation, all representation, all representation is gone. So either, either you stand before God on your own, which you're going to fail. All man do, does. We all do. Or you stand before God being represented by Jesus Christ. So even though you may not like the idea that it's not fair, that's not fair. If you do away with representation, you do away with salvation. There is no salvation. So that can't be the option. Well, then you know what the answer is? The answer is I'll just ignore it. I'll just act like it's not in Scripture, or better yet, it's complicated. I didn't quite get the host spare, you know, Kai, Hutos, Hutos, Kai. I didn't quite get that, Greg. So you know what? I'll just ignore this difficult, complicated passage and live happily on my way. Brothers and sisters, if you do that as a Christian, you'll be one of the most, most miserable people around. To ignore this doctrine is to be miserable. And the reason why, brothers and sisters, is because it's very simple. To ignore this doctrine is to ignore the principle of representation and therefore to place yourself back under the responsibility of performing before God. As I said, you will either be in Christ or you'll be in Adam. If you don't care about that, guess what? Your natural bent as a sinner, though you're saved, will be to rebuild what was once destroyed right? Galatians says that very, very same thing. Galatians 3, 3b, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? That's what the entire book of Galatians is written to a bunch of churches who, though they were saved by Jesus Christ, they were operating as if Adam were still their representative, which meant they were operating under as if what they do mattered. I can, I can somehow make God happy with me, I can somehow please God. Now you hear me this, and you go, I would not do that. Are you nuts? I know the gospel. I know Galatians. You've talked about performance till we're do- till blue in the face. I would never do that, Greg. I know that, that Jesus Christ is my Savior. It's his performance by which I live. So I would not ignore this, even though I'm not going to worry about it. Brothers and sisters, let me give you seven signs that you're ignoring what Paul is teaching here this morning. One, when you relate to God, the basis of your uh, performance, one, you will, be, you will tend to be critical of God's providences. You ever find yourself critical of God's providences? If you do, you, you are relating to God on the basis of your uh, performance. Why would you be critical of God's uh, uh, providences if you, if you deserved it? See, our problem is we go, man, I've done a lot, and God didn't do a lot, and now I'm critical of God. I don't like the fact that God did this. That's not fair. That's really in God on the basis of your uh, performance. Second, feeling the need to defend yourself before others. That's your performance driven. You are ignoring the cross work of Jesus Christ. Having a pride that is frequently wounded. You walk around with a wounded pride. You know, I I feel this need to defend because I'm less than what I want to to be. You're making me sound, brothers and sisters, you're living by uh, performance. Being hypercritical of others, performance. Feeling incredibly distant from God, performance. Frequently questioning your salvation, performance. Having limited or no joy before God, performance. Brothers and sisters, you can reject it. I don't reject it. It makes sense exegetically. It makes sense judicially. You can ignore it. 
Oh, I would never ignore this. I do it all the time. What is the call, brothers and sisters? What is Paul's call, this beautiful, necessary Savior? It's to embrace him. You can accept it. And brothers and sisters, I want to close by talking about what that means if you accept it. If you accept this doctrine, what that means is you accept the notion that your relationship with God has been or has been created, secured, and maintained by Jesus Christ. Do you understand what that means? Christ just didn't make it possible. Christ, you're either represented by Christ or, or Adam. And if you're represented by Christ, then get this. What's God's disposition towards you this very moment? What's God's disposition towards you when you sin? What's God's disposition towards you when you fail again and again and again? This doctrine says it's the same disposition as God's relationship is with Christ. If Christ is your representative, do you understand this? Then, what is God's disposition towards Christ? That is his disposition towards you today. What, um, how, how blessed is God, or how, how pleased is God with Christ? However pleased God is with Christ, he's pleased with you. Um, how deep and unending do you suppose is God's love for Christ? It's the same with regards to you. Brothers and sisters, we go faulty when we ignore this doctrine and we now stand before God on the basis of our own two feet, thinking I can stand naked, I don't mean literally naked, but spiritually naked before God. I am in this neutral ground. Brothers and sisters, there's no such ground. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And if you're in Christ, if you're represented by Christ, then whatever is true of Christ is true of you. Do you see how, how freeing that that is? Your walk with God now, therefore, does not involve performance. Well, it does, actually. Whose uh, performance? Christ's. His performance. That's, my, that's, that's why I, I, I approach God. Because of Christ's performance. God's love for Christ. God's, um, his, his pleasure in Christ. That is now our pleasure. God's pleasure with us. If you're in Christ Jesus, that is what you are. Do you see how necessary Jesus Christ is? He's just not necessary for you when you sin or when you're not feeling very good. Jesus Christ is necessary for you for the rest of eternity. Evermore, at every waking and sleeping moment for the rest of eternity, Christ is necessary. Why? Because Christ, it's, it's based upon God's view of Christ, how God views you incredible so this day brothers and sisters allow this this truth this doctrinal truth to just wash over your conscience your guilty conscience your your weakness in your walk with god where you haven't been in the word of god and you just feel like god is somehow disapproving of you let this wash over your alienation that sense that i'm so far from god i can never get back brothers and sisters you are not far from god at all you're just not looking at him he's there within you he's beside you and he is well pleased with you throughout all this will change your life let me close with the story it's a miner in, um, I don't know where he's from, somewhere in the U.S. He's a miner, young, young man. There was a mining accident, and he became paralyzed from his neck down. 
Now, years later, he's an old gentleman, and what he's known for is his joy in the Lord. And so one day, a young gentleman comes up, uh, came up to him from their, his church and paid a call upon him, and he asked him, why, what's the hope with you? Why are you filled with so much joy? You're so, you just exude it. And the old man was honest, shockingly honest. And he said to him, sometimes Satan comes to my bedside. He points out my window to friends with fine homes, growing families, and healthy bodies. Then he taunts me by asking or by saying, God loves you. (laughs) Is that God treats his people he loves? The boy heard that shocked because he thought this guy was always happy. No, no. I have my days, I have my moments, I have my difficulties. So the boy said, well, what do you say when Satan says that to you? And this was his answer. He says, I take Satan by the hand to a hill called Calvary. There I point to the thorns on Jesus' brow and to the nails in, in, in hands and feet. And I say to Satan, behold, how much God loves me. Brothers and sisters, this doctrine is very practical. It changes the way you relate to God in the world. Today, receive this, maybe once and for all. I doubt it because I'm a sinner. It will never be once and for all for me. But may God give us the grace to receive this once and for all. God is eternally well pleased with you. You'll never lose it. May you live in light of this glorious truth, rejoicing. Let's pray. Father God, we're so grateful. We're so grateful, Lord, for Jesus Christ that you have sent a Savior. And Lord, this morning we've looked at a passage that lifts up this Savior to the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory. We bow before you, Lord Jesus, and we worship you and we thank you for being our representative, knowing that on the day of judgment we will not stand there naked, but we will stand there clothed in your righteousness with you by our side and with you as our judge. Lord Jesus, we're so grateful for what you have given us. God the Father, thank you for conceiving this way. And Holy Spirit, thank you for applying this way to our lives. That right now we stand before you in Christ as the beloved of God, well-pleasing ever and always. Lord, everything within us as sinners at times says that can't be true, but that simply is to trample underfoot you as our representative. Lord, you are it. We praise you for that. Give us the grace as your people to believe, to trust, to never lose sight of this incredible message. Lord, conceived in eternity past, applied in our lives at this very moment. God, grant us the grace to live our lives out of glory and reverence and response of thankfulness and, and gratitude. And Lord, if there should be any hearing this today who does not have a saving relationship with you, who are represented only by Adam, we pray, oh God, you'd open their eyes and that you would let them see their dire situation. That Lord, they stand before you guilty of foul revolt, even though they may have lived a morally upright life, enviable at that. For they are in Adam and Adam's sin will be is imputed upon them. And therefore, Lord, though the law of Moses is not imputed upon um, those who have never heard it, we know the law of, of the garden is. 
God, we pray you therefore would save them. Open their eyes, let them see their need for another representative, Jesus Christ. And may they in faith repent and turn to you for salvation. But Lord, we thank you. Thank you, God. Thank you for the life you've given us. Give us the grace, O Lord, never to, to, to not preach this news to our, our souls, but Lord, to preach it daily, to live in light of it daily, to rejoice in it daily. For God, you are our ground of, of exaltation, our boast and our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.